Section 6 of The Art of Controversy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Carl Manchester, 2010. The Art of Controversy by Arthur Schopenhauer. Translated by T. Bailey Saunders. 31. If you know that you have no reply to the arguments which your opponent advances, you may, by a fine stroke of irony, declare yourself to be an incompetent judge. What you now say passes my poor powers of comprehension. It may be all very true, but I can't understand it, and I refrain from any expression of opinion on it. In this way, you insinuate to the bystanders, with whom you are in good repute, that what your opponent says is nonsense. Thus, when Kant's critique appeared, or rather, when it began to make a noise in the world, many professors of the old eclectic school declared that they failed to understand it, in the belief that their failure settled the business. But when the adherents of the new school proved to them that they were quite right, and had really failed to understand it, they were in a very bad humour. This is a trick which may be used only when you are quite sure that the audience thinks much better of you than of your opponent. A professor, for instance, may try it on a student. Strictly, it is a case of the preceding trick. It is a particularly malicious assertion of one's own authority, instead of giving reasons. The counter-trick is to say, I beg your pardon, but with your penetrating intellect it must be very easy for you to understand anything, and it can only be my poor statement of the matter that is at fault and then go on to rub it into him until he understands it, nolens volens, and sees for himself that it was really his own fault alone. In this way you parry his attack. With the greatest politeness he wanted to insinuate that you were talking nonsense, and you, with equal courtesy, prove to him that he is a fool. 32. If you are confronted with an assertion, there is a short way of getting rid of it, or, at any rate, of throwing suspicion on it, by putting it in some odious category, even though the connection is only apparent, or else of a loose character. You can say, for instance, that is Manichaeism, or it is Arianism, or Pelagianism, or Idealism, or Spinozism, or Pantheism, or Brownianism, or Naturalism, or Atheism, or Rationalism, Spiritualism, Mysticism, and so on. In making an objection of this kind, you take it for granted, one, that the assertion in question is identical with, or at least contained in, the category cited, that is to say, you cry out, oh, I have heard that before, and two, that the system referred to has been entirely refuted, and does not contain a word of truth. 33. That's all very well in theory, but it won't do in practice. In this sophism, you admit the premises, but deny the conclusion, in contradiction with a well-known rule of logic. The assertion is based upon an impossibility. What is right in theory must work in practice, and if it does not, there is a mistake in the theory. Something has been overlooked and not allowed for. And consequently, what is wrong in practice is wrong in theory too. 34. When you state a question or an argument, 
and your opponent gives you no direct answer or reply, but evades it by a counter-question, or an indirect answer, or some assertion which has no bearing on the matter, and generally tries to turn the subject, it is a sure sign that you have touched a weak spot, sometimes without knowing it. You have, as it were, reduced him to silence. You must, therefore, urge the point all the more, and not let your opponent evade it, even when you do not know where the weakness which you have hit upon really lies. 35. There is another trick which, as soon as it is practicable, makes all others unnecessary. Instead of working on your opponent's intellect by argument, work on his will by motive, and he, and also the audience if they have similar interests, will at once be won over to your opinion, even though you got it out of a lunatic asylum. For, as a general rule, half an ounce of will is more effective than a hundredweight of insight and intelligence. This, it is true, can be done only under particular circumstances. If you succeed in making your opponent feel that his opinion, should it prove to be true, will be distinctly prejudicial to his interest, he will let it drop like a hot potato, and feel that it was very imprudent to take it up. A clergyman, for instance, is defending some philosophical dogma. You make him sensible of the fact that it is in immediate contradiction with one of the fundamental doctrines of his church, and he abandons it. A landed proprietor maintains that the use of machinery in agricultural operations, as practised in England, is an excellent institution, since an engine does the work of many men. You give him to understand that it will not be very long before carriages are also worked by steam, and that the value of his large stud will be greatly depreciated, and you will see what he will say. In such cases, every man feels how thoughtless it is to sanction a law unjust to himself. Quam temere in nosmet legum sancimus iniquam. Nor is it otherwise if the bystanders, but not your opponent, belong to the same sect, guild, industry, club, etc., as yourself. Let his thesis be never so true, as soon as you hint that it is prejudicial to the common interests of the said society, all the bystanders will find that your opponent's arguments, however excellent they be, are weak and contemptible, and that yours, on the other hand, though they were random conjecture, are correct and to the point you will have a chorus of loud approval on your side, and your opponent will be driven out of the field with ignominy. Nay, the bystanders will believe, as a rule, that they have agreed with you out of pure conviction. For what is not to our interest mostly seems absurd to us, our intellect being no sycamalumen. This trick might be called taking the tree by its root. Its usual name is the argumentum ab utile. 36. You may also puzzle and bewilder your opponent by mere bombast, and the trick is possible because a man generally supposes that there must be some meaning in words. Givundlich glaubt der Mensch, wenn er nur Worte hört. Es müsse sich dabei doch auch was denken lassen. If he is secretly conscious of his own weakness, and accustomed to hear much that he does not understand, and to make as though he did, you can easily impose upon him by some serious fooling that sounds very deep or learned, and deprives him of hearing sight and thought, and by giving out that it is the most indisputable proof of what you assert. 
It is a well-known fact that in recent times some philosophers have practised this trick on the whole of the public with the most brilliant success. But since present examples are odious, we may refer to the Vicar of Wakefield for an old one. 37. Should your opponent be in the right, but, luckily for your contention, choose a faulty proof, you can easily manage to refute it, and then claim that you have thus refuted his whole position. This is a trick which ought to be one of the first. It is, at bottom, an expedient by which an argumentum ad hominem is put forward as an argumentum ad rem. If no accurate proof occurs to him, or to the bystanders, you have won the day. For example, if a man advances the ontological argument, by way of proving God's existence, you can get the best of him, for the ontological argument may easily be refuted. This is the way in which bad advocates lose a good cause, by trying to justify it by an authority which does not fit it, when no fitting one occurs to them. 38. A last trick is to become personal, insulting, rude, as soon as you perceive that your opponent has the upper hand, and that you are going to come off worst. It consists in passing from the subject of dispute, as from a lost game, to the disputant himself, and in some way attacking his person. It may be called the argumentum ad personam, to distinguish it from the argumentum ad hominem, which passes from the objective discussion of the subject, pure and simple, to the statements or admissions which your opponent has made in regard to it. But in becoming personal, you leave the subject altogether and turn your attack to his person, by remarks of an offensive and spiteful character. It is an appeal from the virtues of the intellect to the virtues of the body, or to mere animalism. This is a very popular trick, because everyone is able to carry it into effect, and so it is a frequent application. Now, the question is, what counter-trick avails for the other party? For, if he has recourse to the same rule, there will be blows, or a duel, or an action for slander. It would be a great mistake to suppose that it is sufficient not to become personal yourself, for by showing a man quite quietly that he is wrong, and that what he says and thinks is incorrect, a process which occurs in every dialectical victory, you embitter him more than if you used some rude or insulting expression. Why is this? Because, as Hobbes observes, all mental pleasure consists in being able to compare oneself with others to one's own advantage. Nothing is of greater moment to a man than the gratification of his vanity, and no wound is more painful than that which is inflicted on it. Hence such phrases as death before dishonour, and so on. The gratification of vanity arises mainly by comparison of oneself with others, in every respect, but chiefly in respect of one's intellectual powers, and so the most effective and the strongest gratification of it is to be found in controversy. Hence the embitterment of defeat, apart from any question of injustice, and hence recourse to that last weapon, that last trick, which you cannot evade by mere politeness. A cool demeanour may, however, help you here. If, as soon as your opponent becomes personal, you quietly reply, that has no bearing on the point in dispute, and immediately bring the conversation back to it, and continue to show him that he is wrong, 
without taking any notice of his insults. Say, as Themistocles said to Eurybiades, Strike, but hear me, but such demeanour is not given to everyone. Footnote. Elementa philosophica de sive. End footnote. As a sharpening of wits, controversy is often indeed of mutual advantage in order to correct one's thoughts and awaken new views. But in learning and in mental power, both disputants must be tolerably equal. If one of them lacks learning, he will fail to understand the other, and he is not on the same level with his antagonist. If he lacks mental power, he will be embittered, and led into dishonest tricks, and end by being rude. The only safe rule, therefore, is that which Aristotle mentions in the last chapter of his Topica. Not to dispute with the first person you meet, but only with those of your acquaintances, of whom you know that they possess sufficient intelligence and self-respect not to advance absurdities, to appeal to reason and not to authority, and to listen to reason and yield to it, and finally, to cherish truth, to be willing to accept reason even from an opponent, and to be just enough to bear being proved to be in the wrong, should truth lie with him. From this it follows that scarcely one man in a hundred is worth your disputing with him. You may let the remainder say what they please, for everyone is at liberty to be a fool. Desipere est jus gentium. Remember what Voltaire says. La paix vaut encore mieux que la vérité. Remember also an Arabian proverb, which tells us that on the tree of silence there hangs its fruit, which is peace. End of section 6